0: Welcome to The Pump Spot. I'm Amy Van Heren, and we're here sharing community conversations about the ways we nourish and feed our families. We're in the midst of World Breastfeeding Week, and we're exploring many shades of this journey. So I'm very excited to share this particular conversation because we're digging into the role of fathers and partners in breastfeeding. I sat down with Tom Johnston, a midwife and lactation consultant, the father of eight breastfed children, and an assistant professor of nursing at Methodist University, where he teaches, among other things, maternal child nursing and nutrition. Tom brings an amazingly unique perspective, both professionally and personally, and a wealth of insights, not only on fatherhood, but also on the microbiome and the magic of milk. We spoke in detail about breastfeeding as a family affair, how much nourishment is more than the physical, and why at the end of the day, what matters most from partners and parents is love. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Here we go.
1: Well, Tom, welcome to the Pump Spot. Thanks so much for joining us. We're happy to have you here.
2: Thanks. It's You know, I, I I'm eager to help.
1: So, you have a very deep history in terms of being around the breastfeeding journey, both as it relates to your own family. You're the father of eight, and you have a long history of work in maternal wellness and human lactation. And so, why don't we start?
2: Sure. Yeah. You know, um, I I came into this field. A little bit accidentally. Um, I was an army cook and I was fat, dumb and happy and really enjoying my life. Uh, I was going to be the sergeant major of the army or something back when I was uh, a young man and I met and married uh, my wife who was a NICU nurse and she herself a breastfeeding expert. I believe she was a CLE or a CLC at the time. and We had a couple of children and when we were pregnant with our second child, the army offered me the chance to go to nursing school and i said well what do nurses do for a living they said ah you'll figure it out when you get there just go to nursing school so i went to nursing school and that was fun and uh like all uh boy nurses i thought i wanted to be a crna or an icu nurse or an er nurse or something like that but I found myself terribly bored when i went to the operating room and i hate the whole wearing masks and face shields and the smells of the operating room. it's just a terrible place to be so I started volunteering around the hospital Looking for a place to work, I was working on a uh, a med surge floor. Uh, well, I'm sorry, on a surgical floor. And we were separated. We had males on one side of the floor and females on the other side of the floor. And well, because it was an army hospital, all of the males were orthopedic injuries. And that was just a horrible, horrible thing to do. It was That was back in the days where we had tractions and you know, pulleys and it was all these drains. and It was a horrible place to work. And I, I hated orthopedics. So I always found myself volunteering to work on the female side of the floor thyroidectomies, hysterectomies, yeah, that kind of thing. And so my volunteer work kind of led me into the GYN area and working on uh, on labor and delivery as a volunteer. Uh, next thing you knew, I was volunteering two or three days a week as a labor and delivery nurse, and they offered me a job. So I said, sure, yeah, I'll be a labor and delivery nurse. That sounds like fun. So I became a labor and delivery nurse, and um, the military is... Anywhere from one third to one quarter, uh, the military nurse corps is men. And so it was really common for men to be in labor and delivery in the military. And so there was, uh, there were myself and another RN were males, but several of the labor and delivery techs were males, the OR techs were males, all of the physicians except for one were males. And it wasn't uncommon that we would have several nights a month where there was an all male staff working labor and delivery. So it was just, it felt right to be there. Well, I came to Fort Bragg, my first tour, in Fort Bragg, and they put me on the mother baby unit. And at first, I wasn't happy, but I fell in love with lactation. It seemed where I could really make the biggest the biggest dent, uh, where I could really help the most. The the folks there were just beginning their breastfeeding journey, you know, the the staff, and uh, so they really needed a lot of help. And my experience in Germany, and with my wife, had had made me um, really interested. In that field, and so I quickly became the breastfeeding expert. My boss sent me off to the um, Healthy Children at CLC course, and then I became a lactation consultant. That was back in uh, 2001, 2002, and then the army offered me midwifery school. Well, I wanted to be a perinatal clinical nurse specialist, but uh, you know, just like with nursing, I said, "Yeah, sure. If you want me to be a midwife, I'll be a midwife." So I became a midwife, but my my passion was never really in birth my passion was all about lactation so you know fast forward 10 15 years or so i retired from the army as a lieutenant colonel back uh in uh, 2015 and now i work entirely in lactation i teach in uh, at the uh, private university here in fayetteville i teach of course OBGYN, nutrition psych that kind of thing but uh uh, and then I have a private practice in town where we do just lactation, uh, me and another lactation consultant, and we focus primarily on the high-risk, fragile newborns. And yeah, that's how I came to be you know, my, my own experience with eight children taught me a lot about what newborns and children were like normally, but it didn't really teach me a lot about lactation because, you know, my wife is perfect and she's fantastic at breastfeeding. And, uh, if, if we had problems, we were able to overcome them really easily because, you know, we're two professionals in the field, it wasn't all that big a deal. Uh, we had a pretty good, pretty good run when it came to pregnancies and births and, and breastfeeding, but, you know, it taught me a lot about, uh, that the first four months outside the womb and how, how much babies have to learn during that time and how to really read them for what they really mean. And uh, so, yeah, that, but that, that's how I became who I am, I guess, just kind of by accident.
1: Well, and when you tell the story, it sounds such such an organic, natural path. You followed your interests, you followed the need, you were you know, part of an all-male environment who were serving the healthcare needs of women. So naturally you did that. But in some ways, you you know, at least, and I, you know, we've, I've traveled across the country and met all kinds of lactation consultants and healthcare workers. And the truth is there aren't a lot of male lactation consultants generally in the field. So in many ways, I think you... And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you still are in the minority in terms of, of the work that you're doing. But to hear you tell it sounds so natural and organic. So has it felt just natural and organic to you to do this work and work with these mothers? Or have you found yourselves in scenarios where it you know is unexpected and that changes your relationships?
2: Well, you know, it it does come off as as quite organic. And and I have to correct credit the military for that. You know, when, when the military talks about equal opportunity and diversity and all that good stuff, by God, they mean it. And when they say anyone can do anything, they mean it, you know? And so it never really raises an eye in the military to have a man in an all woman field or, you know, really vice versa. Uh, It's, it's much more well accepted. Now patients, by the way, they just love me. Uh, I never have problems with patients. The biggest problem I have is when I work with nurses You know, part of nursing education is the idea that the nurse is there to advocate for and protect patients. And so a lot of um, the feelings of the nurse gets projected on the patient, you know, and so every once in a while, I'll bump into a nurse who is uh, just not very friendly toward men in the field, and uh, they will, you know, try to protect their patient from me. Uh, it doesn't happen so much anymore. Uh, happened a lot when I was a lieutenant, and it's one of the main reasons I went to become an IBCLC instead of just being a breastfeeding expert. Was because you know when you're an IBCLC, you have some what do they call it bona fides? You know, you have some you have this uh, this credential that says I know what I'm talking about. I'm not just somebody you know just some weirdo who's interested in breasts. I'm I actually am a scientist in the field. And so um, you know, there, there's been a couple of, of bumps in the road, but in general, it's been, you know, like you say, very organic, very natural. And I equate that. I I, I give all the credit to that just being in the military.
1: Well, you must also bring a pretty unique perspective just in terms of not helping only the women and the mothers who are navigating this journey, but certainly the partners and the fathers and the, you know, the support system, because that's such a vital part of this breastfeeding journey. And so tell me a bit about you know, your experience as a, as a father yourself, but help us think about, you know, what is the role and the value that men and partners can bring during this journey of nourishment, which is frequently seen the heavy lifting, at least on the mother's side of things, even though it really is a family unit. So, so talk to us a bit about that side of it in your perspective.
2: Sure. Well, you know, thankfully those most of those perspectives are changing. So, when I I've always been an educator and I've always loved speaking in front of large audiences. And uh, but when I first started uh, doing it, the very first talk I ever gave uh, was on the role of the father in breastfeeding for the La Leche League here in Fayetteville. That was the first you know big big speech that I I think I gave, and it was you know they said you're a a a lactation expert I wasn't IBCLC yet but I was a CLC and I was really engaged in breastfeeding and I had uh by that time I think I had four children and um they ask you know would you come and share your perspectives and initially there was no research on the topic it was really nothing i could i could hardly find anything at all and so um i went from the perspective of you know how do men see breastfeeding um and what can i what did i do as a father that was in 2000 i think 2000 2001 and um Fast forward now, um, you know, there were a spate of randomized controlled trials in 2003 to 2007. And then here in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of work done on this uh, new theory or relatively new theory called co-parenting. And I've really kind of latched on to the idea of co-parenting the idea of co-parenting is that fathers are not support people. They're not grandmothers. They're not aunts and uncles. They're not community volunteers. Fathers are parents and they are as equally valid in, in breastfeeding as they are in, you know, discipline, as they are in upbringing, as they are in diapering as, and, and they are equal to the mother. And so When you treat fathers as co-parents instead of as a support person, you will get a totally different response. And uh, so that's that's really where I've been recently is, is focusing a lot on on that.
1: And how can how can fathers and, and couples together as they go into this parenting journey, you know, what is the best way for them to engineer for success as a couple? You know, what are some of the tips or what have you seen work really well when they come to the table thinking as co-parents in terms of feeding in, you know, the early days in the hospital and when you get home, what have you seen work really well as co-parents to really nurture this feeding journey as a, as a unit, as a team?
2: Well, you know, the first thing we have to recognize is that uh, men are kind of at a disadvantage when it comes to parenting. We're not, we don't play with dolls growing up. We're not asked to babysit. We're not invited in to change the baby's diaper uh, and to provide baby care when our cousins or aunts or uncles or whatever have children. And so when it comes to parenting, we're kind of left in this state of ignorance. And and then it only gets compounded when pregnancy happens because, you know, mom will go into pregnancy and there's all this education built around the mother and what she needs to know. Um, fathers are tacitly invited into the appointments for routine OB appointments, but they're completely ignored in routine OB appointments. The provider might say, hi, dad, how are you? But that's about it they don't ask dad how it feels to be a dad, what he's afraid of, what he needs to know. How do you, you know, do you know how to change a diaper or anything like that? And so dads, um, you know, they, they they don't come to a lot of prenatal appointments because they get ignored while they're there. I hated going to my wife's prenatal appointments. If I didn't do them myself, it wasn't worth my time. Because um, I would just get, it, even as the chief of midwives, I would be ignored uh, when it came to prenatal appointments. It was funny, And uh, I tell a lot of stories about being ignored by the nurses on labor and delivery or mother, mother, baby. Even when I was doing their work for them, I was being ignored by them. So they come from a bit of a disadvantage, both, you know, socially, they they don't know a lot. They're not taught a lot and they're ignored in the field. Um, So dads have to, moms and dads have to kind of take it on themselves to to bring it up to ask healthcare providers that sort of thing. In my work, I've been actively teaching um, every healthcare provider I could um, how to engage fathers. You know, it's simple stuff. Invite them to the appointments. Ask why they're not coming to the appointments, and then engage them when they're at the appointment. Dad, how do you feel? What do you think? What do you need to know? Just like you do, mom. And um, when you do that, there's a very positive response. A lot of healthcare providers just assume that fathers aren't interested. They really aren't, they really are interested. They either don't know how to ask the questions or they don't feel invited to ask the questions, you know? Um, And so they're kind of, uh, they're, they're easy to ignore they just sit quiet and try to obey and then they end up getting they end up getting ignored and then they fall behind. So uh, a lot of my um, professional speaking work has been teaching healthcare providers how to speak to men and I always make the joke that I am a man so I grew up speaking boy and I'm fluent in boy that's my natural language. But I'm also a midwife and a lactation consultant so I speak girl too. And so I'm kind of bilingual. I speak both languages evenly and I um in my presentations I talk about how I'm going to teach you how to speak boy. I'm going to teach you what it means when a man gets angry or when a man makes an inappropriate joke. What does it mean uh, when, you know, when when you hand him something that's pink and colorful with flowers and Bambi on it and he ignores it, you know, he's not interested in that stuff. If you're going to speak to men, you have to have male targeted language. They'll hear it better. So yeah, I think that the, those are the big things that I try to get across both to moms and dads and to healthcare providers is we really need to kind of, look at the world from their perspective, uh, and then we'll get a lot better uh, response at it.
0: Hey friends, we want to take a quick break and remind you of all the places you can connect with us and this lovely pump spotting community. If you're a nursing, pumping, or new mom, or a seasoned mom who just wants to get back, hop on our app. If you're also working or you're part of a company that wants to support breastfeeding employees, then Pump Spotting at Work is for you. Find out more at pumpspotting.com.
1: You know, when you're thinking about speaking boy language and speaking to dads, what is it that you think they most need to understand about breastfeeding or, you know, what is if so many of them maybe are afraid to ask the question or to, to get involved or to, you know, speak up and initiate. And so one thing that's amazing you're doing is really helping providers, open the door for that conversation and make it part of it, you know, for all the new dads out there who are listening or the ones who are in the midst of this, what, you know, what do you think they need to know first and foremost, or what's helpful for them to think about or ask about?
2: So the first thing I tell all new dads is you made this baby too. You know, this baby is your baby, just like this baby is her baby. Okay, it literally is 50 50. This isn't her baby. And you're just paying the bills. This isn't her baby. And you're just here to do the heavy lifting. And this isn't her baby. And you're just here to change diapers. Okay, this is your baby. And you are equally responsible for how this baby is nourished, how this baby is cared for how this baby is brought up. So often men abdicate that to the mother, they say, "Ah, she'll take care of that. That's okay. I'll just go to work and bring on the money both the family and the man um, suffer when they do that, because he brings a lot to the table. Uh, there's a, you know the, the concept of a yin and yang out there that we need the good and the bad, we need the pro and the con, we need the, we need the white and the black, we need it all together. Um, in order to create a, a a whole person, to create a whole family, create a whole society. Uh, my wife and I are very different in our parenting um, styles. And that's appropriate because my kids need both in order to learn. And so I teach dads that um, there's a reason it takes two people to make a baby. And that's because it takes two people to care for a newborn. And so you both have your own tasks. I usually. Um, try to keep it simple when I talk to dads. I don't talk about love and emotion and pretty because they're not interested. Uh, I talk about facts. I talk about when does the baby need to eat? How does the baby eat? When is the baby finished eating? Three simple things. I use a lot of humor and a lot of analogy because I come from a military perspective. Uh, Everybody in the military knows how to fire an M-16. And so I have an analogy for how breastfeeding and firing an M-16 is the same thing. You just line up your front and rear sight posts, head, shoulder, and trunk. uh, And if there's a problem, you pull on your charging handle and that's the chin. And that solves 90% of your double feeds. And, uh, you know, there's a military acronym. Yeah, mm-hmm. called sports, slap pull, observe, release, tap, shoot. And I use that for the M16. I say, slap pull, observe, release, tap, shoot. Put that in place with your breastfeeding baby. You'll be fine. So, that's those are the big things that I push. You know, first, he needs to be there because his baby needs him. Second, this is what you're going to do while you're there. I can't be there at three o'clock in the morning. When they're having problems, when mom and baby are crying at 3 a.m., you're not going to see me and I'm not going to roll over and be, oh, yeah, let me solve the problem. I can't do it. Right. So dad has to do that. And so, you know, it, it, it is a I know from firsthand experience, it is a terrible feeling at three o'clock in the morning, not knowing how to help, not knowing what to do when everybody is suffering and mom is in pain and she's crying and everybody's miserable to know nothing about it. It's terrible right and men will either check out and go downstairs and ignore it or they'll just sit and suffer and feel useless both of them are equally inappropriate so i teach that you i you are going to need these skills i promise you
1: in our household so we had the rule that when mom feeds baby dad feeds mom And so that was our, you know, he was always cutting up little snacks and things that I could eat and what have you. And so I know for us, just even having kind of a simple plan in motion or something that felt useful and productive because it was hard for me to get up and eat. And so sometimes it feels as though in the middle of the night, you're all in that state of panic and everybody's feeling it. Sometimes it's very simple, small things that I found. And it sounds like dads and partners can do to really help ease the pain or be part of the process?
2: Absolutely. You know, um, I always uh, tell dads that newborns do not negotiate in good faith. Um, A newborn either needs, he needs it met, his needs met right now. um, And if he doesn't get his needs met right now, he's not going to be happy. Now, um, unfortunately, between 9 p.m. and 3 a.m. when a baby is most alert, dad is of very little value. Because baby really needs to be uh, on the breast a lot during that time, um, but and and mom has to be awake. Mom is basically working a night shift every night, right? Uh, but during the day is when dad can give mom naps. Dad can make sure mom is well taken care of. Uh, there's a pair of researchers. I'm 99% sure they're a husband and wife team, uh, Remple and Remple, and they've been working a lot on uh, this uh, scale, um, trying to figure out what part of paternal support is most valued, most helpful, what's best. And what they found is that the kind of the tacit support that fathers offer is the most important. It's not the direct hands-on, let me answer your questions and solve your problems, because that can get annoying. Um, It's really the tacit support, like you were saying, uh, cutting your food for you, you know, because you're one-handed a lot of the time, right? I did that a lot for my family too. I was always cutting up my wife's food so she could eat, um, several times feeding her (laughs) during the meal. So it wouldn't get cold, but just setting up the environment and making sure she gets naps during the day, making sure she has uninterrupted time, making sure that the baby is uh, that the baby's needs are well met, and mom is well rested. Because at three o'clock in the morning, I can't help. I always use a superhero analogy when I talk about it, and I say, uh, "Mom is Wonder Woman." She is literally superhuman. She can do all kinds of amazing things that men cannot do. She can bleed two or three liters of blood and walk up and stand up and walk away like nothing happened, right? Where a man would be in the intensive care unit on a ventilator, not a pregnant woman. They can handle that. They are literally have superpowers. They can be awake and asleep at the same time. And that's why they, when the baby goes, eh, they snap right to like nothing, like they were never even asleep. That is not mom is paying attention. Okay. Uh, It's not that mom is paying attention and dad is lazy. It's that she has this innate uh, ability that's superhuman power brought on by having a baby uh, where she can be in REM2 sleep and wide awake at the same time. McKenna and Ball uh, were working on that a few years ago, doing EEG studies on sleeping, breastfeeding mothers and finding that they could switch back and forth from REM2 to fully awake instantly. That's a superhuman power. That's not just mom is working harder. That is that, that, just like that, that innate superhuman uh, mother hearing and mother sense of smell, those aren't just paying attention. They're not human anymore. And so, when I teach uh, my nursing students about it and when I teach dads about it, I talk about how you have married Wonder Woman. How amazing for you! She's fantastic. Use her. Now, dad, unfortunately, not a superhero. Okay. Dad uh, does not have any superpower, but like Batman, he wears a cool tool belt. And his number one tool that a man that dad has is his Adam's apple. When a dad speaks, his voice vibrates in his chest and it's a full body massage. So you will very quickly find that if the baby is hungry, mom is the only person who can help. But if the baby is not hungry, mom gets annoying because she always smells like lunch and she triggers the baby to to instinctually eat and baby doesn't want to eat. And so that's when dad is really helpful. I say, offer the baby the breast. And if he doesn't take it, give him to dad. Dad will take care of him after that. And dad puts him on his chest and talks, hey, baby, how are you doing? In that beautiful, deep, rumbling daddy voice. And baby will bury him in the chest and go, oh, this feels so good. Where have you been all my life? And so dads um, do that tacit support by providing care for the baby when he's not hungry. Because, of course, the baby only eats eight hours a day. The other 16 hours a day, he wants to be loved on by anybody. And dads are fantastic at that whole loving thing. And so, you know, we talk a lot about how uh, I want to feed the baby because I want to bond with my baby. And you're, you're not bonding with the baby by feeding the baby. I'm a fat guy. I love five guys' french fries. I love them. But I don't know the name of the kid who hands me the french fries. I certainly don't love him. You know, He just feeds me. That's all. I don't care. The loving part is all the actions around breastfeeding. That's where real bonding occurs. It's the stroking and that you're the most beautiful thing ever. I love you so much. And the eye contact and the soothing. That's where the bonding comes in. It's not the milk coming out of the breast. It's everything else. And I tell dads, you can love your baby even if you're not lactating.
1: Well, all that love is similar when it goes to your partner. (laughs) It's not just the baby who wants all that love and being told you're the most beautiful person in the world. I really think what you're saying is so, so important. So in a way it sounds simple, but I don't think we hear it enough. And I certainly don't think men and partners hear that. And it really is true for the whole family unit. Sometimes it's not about solving a problem. It's, you know, or doing the, you know, the feeding itself. It's really about being present. And it's about knowing that the soothing voice or the soothing touch or just sitting with someone, you know, sitting with mom as she's going through this can can really be those signs of love that help keep her going.
2: Exactly. You know, um, there's, uh, like everything in life, there's a, there's a spectrum. And in, in pediatric care, I've noticed that there's a spectrum with uh, T. Barry Brazelton and Michelle Odent on one side, and uh, Harvey Karp and Dr. Spark, uh, Spock on the other side. And, um, you know, Dr. Spock and Harvey Karp are very mechanistic, very do this to solve your problem uh, kind of thing. Um, and their books talk about that. And on the other side, Michelle Odent and um, T. Barry Brazelton are all about love. And, um, and bonding and support and, and doing all of your things out of a sense of love. And I, obviously you can tell where I tend to fall is <laughs> on the loving side, right? Um, and so uh, I, I think that when, when, when and I tell dads because they're scared and I don't wanna do the wrong thing. And I tell them as long as your motivation is love-based, you will never do the wrong thing. Come at it from a perspective of, I love my wife. I love my baby. I love my family. And I want them to all be better. Uh, and everything will be OK. If you come at it from the hero perspective, I'm here to save the day. It doesn't work as well. you know. And so, yeah, I, I think that, that love really does make the world go round, even though I know it sounds uh, uh, corny and sappy. But it really does. And that if we just love each other more, um, we would have a, a, a much easier time of things.
1: Well, I think that's such a beautiful sentiment and and your analogy about superheroes and thinking about it that way is really helpful because it's true. I think sometimes how we approach it, both as women and men and the different sides of the spectrum. And I know that you're also, you know, the scientist side of you is very passionate, not just about the relational piece of breastfeeding and how dads and women can do it, but also you've done spent a lot of time really studying the magic of milk and really what's amazing about lactation and mother's milk and breastfeeding. Uh, and really, in a way, it's its own superpower, breastfeeding and milk production. And so do you want to tell us a little bit, you know, what you've been researching, what what excites you about the magic of milk you want to put your scientist hat on and talk to us a little bit about the beauty of lactation?
2: Sure. So it, it, it's true. I'm, um, I call myself a translational scientist. Uh, I have a, a doctorate in nursing practice, which is very different from a Ph.D., uh, but I have a doctorate in nursing practice. And that means that my focus is on translating. Um, I take the work that the Ph.D.s do and I translate it into something useful. Um, There is a huge gap between what's discovered and what's used. It's usually about 15 years. Um, And so the DNP's job is to shorten that gap and make it closer together. And so um, I've got several projects going on right now, um, but the one that I think is most fascinating that most people really want to hear about is uh, the human microbiome um, and breastfeeding. Um, Because it's such a new, exciting topic. Understand that we only discovered the microbiome um, as a byproduct of the Human Genome Project. So the Human Genome Project, we learned all about identifying and mapping all these genes. And from that, we figured out that there's a whole lot of genes in the human body that are not human. And so it was what on earth are these? What is this non-mammalian DNA in the body? And as it turns out, it's bacteria, viruses, protozoa, um, and uh, so they they use the, the, the human genome project technology to, to create the bacteriome, um, and so that creates um, this created this exciting new field called uh, microbiome theory, um, and the basic principle is that we are more bacteria than human. Um, bacteria viral non-mammalian DNA outnumbers uh, out mammalian DNA in our body anywhere from 10 to one up to um, um, as low as uh, only 50-50. Um, but we are, we're more of a spacesuit for our bacteria or a spaceship for our bacteria than we are an actual human being. Um, and the bacteria that is, surrounds us at all times is actually there to help us uh, we kind of work synergistically with them but a lot of times they're driving the ship and so the uh um it's a, a little bit like uh if you ever watch those uh, oceanography um uh documentaries about like the large sharks and stuff um you see these large sharks are swimming through the ocean they got all these little feeder sharks around or little feeder fish around them that are really close to them and they they tend to the shark they they keep their skin clean. They feed the, they eat off the extra bits that the shark leaves that, that they, and they work kind of synergistically together. And that's what our bacteria does. Um, in, when it comes to breastfeeding, a baby's gut is at birth is pretty naive. It, it, it is, uh, it doesn't know what's out there. Um, and when you'll hear people a lot say that, uh, I mean, you'll hear people say that, that newborns have an immature immune system at birth. They do not have an immature immune system. They have an incomplete immune system. Their immune system is perfectly developed for what they needed in the womb, okay? It works exactly what it needs. But it doesn't know if mom has pine trees or oak trees. It doesn't know if mom has siblings, if mom has other children, if mom has pets. It doesn't know what environment it's going to be in. It doesn't know if it's going to be born in in Sub-Saharan Africa or if it's going to be born in um, Scandinavia or Asia or South America. It doesn't know. Uh, And so that has to be given to the baby at birth. Uh, That process starts as the baby moves through the birth canal. Uh, they move through the birth canal and that open exposure to the outside world to mom's um, uh, birth can- the mucus in mom's birth canal begins to seed the baby with everything the baby needs there is a reason by the way the babies, the most babies are born face down and why the uh, vagina and the rectum are so close together because baby is supposed to come out with a big open mouth and take a big mouthful of mom's uh, rectal mucosa directly into their mouth and then swallow it and begin to seed their gut i recently posted on my facebook page Page, um, an interesting article about when a mother elephant gives birth to a calf, she poops on his head after the baby is born. She just poop, dropped it right on him. And that helps the baby to learn where he is and who his mother is and all that stuff. He takes mom's bacteria. Most mammals eat the stool of their, of their family members and of other mammals. And there's a reason for that. It's called biodiversity. And so humans need that. And that's one of the reasons why uh, babies who are born by C-section, babies who are formula fed are not as healthy as babies who are born vaginally and babies who breastfeed um, because they don't get that bacterial um, support from their mothers. Also, uh, when it comes to breastfeeding, um, when a mom releases breast milk to the baby, in that breast milk, it's, it's in colostrum, of course, but it's also in mature breast milk, is a slurry of really powerful cells. A lot of secretory IgA, which is immune system support, uh, white blood cells and leukocytes of, of various types, um, which for immune support, but also human milk stem cells functioning epithelial cells. We now know that if you take epithelial cells in from breast milk, they will form what's called a mammosphere and will release more beta casein. So the epithelial cells actually clump together outside the body and make more breast milk, uh, which is fascinating. So baby takes in 20 mLs, but he may actually digest 25 mLs. We haven't quantified, but that might explain why the numbers don't work from a nutritional perspective in breastfeeding, because it's more than just calories in, calories out, right? When we talk about colostrum, colostrum is not super milk. As a matter of fact, it's not even milk at all. Uh, colostrum is an immune system. It's it's like an immunization. Um, it is, uh, it's, it's, you know, where the Average woman's mature breast milk is about 20 calories per ounce. Colostrum is only 18.7 calories per ounce, and it's not made up of digestive protein. And when you hear when you read science about they say colostrum is high in protein and low in carbohydrate. It's, it, it is high in protein, but protein is another word for cells. Okay, And those cells are white blood cells, human stem cells, um, um, secretory IgA, all this stuff. The baby is not digesting those and turning them into carbohydrates. That baby is not actually eating when he's on the breast taking colostrum. What he's doing is taking mom's immune support and he's living off his baby fat, which is why all newborns lose weight. Because they're 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 born a little bit chubby, so that they can afford to lose a little bit of weight after the baby is born, um, and then you know on day three or four when uh, lactogenesis two happens and mom's milk comes in, um, that's when it changes. We add lactose and water to it, and that's where the calories come from. Those same slurry, I believe it's ten to the thirteenth power of cells, is still there, but now it's diluted, and now we have all this lactose and water. And the baby is actually the the nourishment part is the lactose and water. The human brain needs this unending supply of lactose uh, or of sugar in order to support the brain. So we have a very sweet breast milk. Um, but the the that immune support continues throughout the baby's entire life. Here's an interesting thing. The um, you know here I am. This is where the in for the last 50 years, we've been talking about the magic that is breastfeeding. We've been talking about how uh, breastfed baby, there are benefits to breastfeeding and breastfed babies are healthier than formula-fed babies and all this stuff. What microbiome theory is teaching us is that it's not really magic. It's physics. It's science. Uh, it's not magic that there is, there's is an actual reason behind it. It's not just because it's, it's, it's something much more va- valid so to speak than that because magic makes it sound like it's an accident and it's not an accident you know um so the uh uh but you may have heard that breast milk is perfect for every baby for every feeding that it's tailor made for that baby but no one ever asks how is it tailor made for that baby well here's the way that works around every lactocyte is this myoepithelial cell and they contract in response to oxytocin, exactly the same way the uterus contracts in response to oxytocin. And so what happens is every three to five minutes, there's a surge of oxytocin, it causes muscles to contract and that pushes the baby out of the uterus, but it also pushes milk out of the breast. Now, once the contraction is over and the muscles start to relax and the lactocyte starts to refill, it creates a retrograde flow that pulls baby's saliva out of his mouth and into mom's breast. So now mom's breast is communicating with the enzymes in baby's mouth. And so there's evidence out there that if a baby has a fever, mom's breast milk will have more white blood cells in it because mom directly responds to the pathogens coming from the baby's mouth. It's not Magic, mom doesn't consciously say, Oh, my baby has a fever. I need more white blood cells. But when those pathogens enter mom's breast, mom's breast says, Ah, more white blood cells. Got it. I need to respond to this infection. I think it's Lars Bode um, who is theorizing that someday um, we may be able to test if a baby has sepsis based on the mom's white blood cell count in her breast milk rather than drawing baby's blood because we can predict babies. Uh, infection by mom's breast milk. It's pretty darn cool stuff. So, um, that's where my, my passion has been these last couple of years is really trying to understand what it means at a molecular level. Um, so that I can, I can show people, guess what? It's not just magic. There isn't a magic wand out there. This is actual physics and science. It's actually happening, um, in the body. It really makes a lot of the, uh, the inconsistencies of breastfeeding make sense when you understand the physics behind them or the science behind them.
1: There's so much to it. There's so many layers and there's so much to understand. And, you know, first of all, I feel as though you're so eloquent about explaining the science of it all. It's pretty amazing to hear you talk. I probably could, could listen to you talk for 12 hours about all the ins and outs of the physics and the science but you know the way you spoke earlier about being a translator in some ways there is all this complexity and there's so much that's happening from a beneficial scientific perspective of moms and babies and the and the transmission of that and then getting to the point where that's understood where that's shared and where that is translated to the day to day of knowing why that science is built that way and why it matters but then how do we how do you deal with what's happening those first days in the hospital and when the milk is coming in. And it's, it's, there's, there's so many layers, not just to the science of it, but then also how we think about using the science behind the value and the impact of it to then really compel more women to continue breastfeeding and more systems, hospitals, providers, communities to think about supporting this. And so, you know, as you spend so much time, both on the scientific side and day to day for you thinking about the translation of how we make the science relatable and impactful to change the way we're integrating breastfeeding into into our our lives as as communities?
2: Well, that's a tough one. It really is because unfortunately, um, healthcare education really is focused on turning out a bunch of practitioners, not a bunch of scientists. Um, And today's nurse and physician are really very task fo- focused, very task oriented. Um, what's wrong? What do I need to do to fix what's wrong? Um, and they're not really trying to understand it. They're just looking for, a, what do I do next? Um, I, I often equate them to, uh, they're kind of like mechanics working on cars. Carburetor's bad, replace the carburetor transmissions bad replace the transmission you know that kind of thing they're not really trying to understand the science behind it or the physiology behind it um and um and and I, it's it's not their fault it's how they're educated and they're taught that way because there is uh there's so much to learn um i don't know if i would be successful if i tried to go through nursing school now um from well when i learned it 25 years ago we weren't all specialists now. All nurses are specialists. All physicians are specialists, and um, they they learn a very narrow focus. In some ways, it makes them better at that narrow focus because there's just there's too much to know. But it tends to turn people into into mechanics instead of into scientists, and so it's very difficult for them to expand and get beyond what they're seeing at the moment. You know, so it's really difficult. Um, now there's a, a Benner's theory of a novice expert would suggest that We begin as novices and we're very task focused and that we need to be encouraged to continue to grow in our knowledge so that we can stop. Eventually we stop being task focused and the rules stop applying to us. And then we start to think outside the box and we start to explore what else is going on. And so um, on a macro level, what needs to happen, I think, is that healthcare provider educators need to teach people that there's more to it then the black and white, these are the rules. They need to think outside the box. Now when they graduate, these students are not going to be doing it. They're not capable of it. But if you plant that seed in a few years, they might, the, a select few will start to explore and, be, and move on. They'll get out of that advanced beginner stage and start to move into the competence stage. And those are the ones who will, who will like me, um, start asking, why does that happen? You know, Why is a newborn born hungry? There's no reason for a newborn to be hungry at birth. None. They were fully fed five minutes ago. They were not hungry in the womb. It wasn't like they spent nine months going, man, I can't wait to get them out the breast milk. But the moment they're born, they're hungry. Why? It has nothing to do with hunger. It's an instinctual behavior, but um, you can't ask that question when you're worried about what is the baby's Apgar score, how much does he weigh? Let's get the baby on the breast. You can't even ask that question because you're too task focused. I got to deal with my computer, and I got I've talked to people who, um, in one electronic health record, they can't admit the baby to the hospital without the baby's birth weight. And since they can't admit the baby to the hospital without a birth weight, they can't get the vitamin K and the eye ointment and all that other stuff that they need. They can't uh, get um, they can't get orders for the baby because he hasn't been admitted, which means the system forces the nursing staff to take the baby off the breast and put him on a scale and weigh him in order to then, um, uh, in order to admit him. So they can't provide any care for the newborn without a weight. And so that inter- interferes with breastfeeding. And so, that comes from somebody who's very task focused, not somebody who understands what's going on, right? Moms always ask me, How much does he weigh? And I say, I don't know, you're holding him. How much do you think he weighs? And they say, Well, no, are, are we going to weigh him? I'm like, Yeah, we'll get to the data collection later. Right now, there's some important stuff going on. That's where um, competent healthcare providers. Become eventually as where where they get to, um, and what we need to do uh, on a macro level is encourage that kind of behavior. Encourage people to think outside the box. Encourage people to get more education. Encourage people to go on in school and to really think uh, beyond what they're doing. You know, the reality is uh, an awful lot of nurses are content being nurses, and they are perfectly happy doing what they're doing, and that is fine. We need them. Okay. We need people who are performing those tasks, absolutely. But we need to encourage those, uh, those select few who are not content to, instead of leaving nursing, go on and get more education and learn more about nursing. Okay. I know if I were forced to be a bedside nurse, I would, I would leave nursing. I wouldn't do it. It, it, never, uh, it never appealed to me. It was never really my calling. Uh, I had something else I wanted to do. Not something more, not something better, something else. My wife loves being a NICU nurse. That is, she is so content uh, being a NICU nurse, she never wants to get any other education. She is perfectly content doing it. And God love her, I need people to do that. Because if she doesn't do that, then I have to. And I would much rather have her do it than me.
1: So over all these years, you have had such a tremendous impact on so many mothers, so many babies, so many families, and even the science piece of it, you're bringing so much to the conversation you know, your, your calling, your purpose, your passion, clearly you are so dedicated and you're bringing so much to what you're doing. You know, when you think back, are there any stories or moments that stand out for you in terms of what it's given back to you to be part of this field?
2: Oh, that's an interesting question. What is it given back to me? Um, You know, what I love the most is when I hear my words coming out of other people's mouths. And especially if they're people who I've never met, that is probably the the most rewarding because it means it's working. It means something is happening, right? I I love the fact that when I started in the field, there was no research on fathers. And now there are a dozen randomized controlled trials and we're coming up with new theories um, because people, not me, but people like me were doing all this work, kind of planting those seeds. And now 20 years later, those seeds are starting to grow like trees. Uh, I had an interesting experience. One of my early mentors, Ann Shields, I love her death. She's a fantastic labor and delivery nurse. She served as a civilian in the army um, her entire adult life. Um, And she was a, a specialist in both labor and delivery and the intensive care. Now that's not, sick labor and delivery woman, that's both labor and delivery and normal intensive care. Um, so she was a um, CCRN and an L and D RNC at the same time, which nobody does that. That is, that is just too much to know. She's too smart, but she was an early mentor of mine. And as a young Lieutenant, she kind of took me under her wings and taught me a lot about labor and delivery. And so she's always been a very good friend of mine. And I've always really appreciated her support. So I left Germany in, I believe it was October, 2000. Fast forward to, I believe it was 2012 or so. She sent me an email. Um, she said, Tom, you'll never believe it. I heard a I uh, had a lieutenant come and she started talking and I swear to God, she sounded exactly like you. And I said, and she was all about dads and breastfeeding and she was all about love. And I was like, where did you hear that? And she said, oh my gosh, I was at a conference out in San Antonio and this guy was talking and it was me. And I was like, aha, I had an influence, right? That's so when, when uh, uh, I don't think a lot about uh, like what it gives to me because I'm very service oriented, but I love hearing that. That makes me feel good. I, I love it when my students will call me and say, oh, Dr. Johnston, you'll never believe what happened. I was in the emergency room and this woman had preeclampsia and she was three weeks postpartum and everybody said it wasn't possible for her to have it. And I said, yes, it is possible. Let me take her blood pressure. And sure enough, she had preeclampsia, you know, um, or when they're in the ICU or whatever. that um when when they come back and tell me stories about you know um i had one student who uh the woman came into the emergency room and she was having a delayed postpartum hemorrhage and the student jumped right up and started massaging her fundus and calling for oxytocin and and all this stuff and uh the afterward the the er physician because she was a relatively new grad the er physician said wow do you have experience in labor and delivery she said no my ob professor beat me to death about this topic so that i'd be prepared and you know, and I, I think that's that's very rewarding. That's I, I think really that's why people get into education um, is because they want to they want to help, they want to further the science. They want to they want to uh, they they think that they have a pretty good recipe for how to do it, and they think other people need to be like them. And so we get into education for those reasons. And I, I think that's probably the the most rewarding part of my day. Of course, when it comes to patients, what I love most is when women are why should say families when families are able to meet their goals. When families uh, come to me and say, you know, I was really at at, at my darkest hour. I, it just happened just last week. I had this woman come in and she had like 10 pages of notes and uh, she was just openly crying and she had so many questions and so many, she was so struggling with it and how she, she didn't like breastfeeding and how this wasn't what she thought it was going to be. And, um, you know, and she was 19 days postpartum. So she had been suffering with this for 19 days and it was a really a very simple fix. And it didn't take much. It just took somebody who understood what was happening to say, it's okay. This is normal behavior and this is why this is happening. Um, I think your baby maybe needs to take a little bit more at the breast than she is right now, but we're going to work on it and make it better. And that's all it took. And mom left a totally different person. Um, and now, you know, here it is a, a week or two later, she's perfectly fine and she's breastfeeding well, and she doesn't need my help anymore. She just needed someone to be able to explain it to her. Now that didn't require somebody with a doctorate. That required somebody who understood lactation to just tell her a little bit about it. Her pediatrician could have done this. Her obstetrician could have done this. It wasn't, I'm not a genius. They just, they, just they, their specialty is so huge that it's hard to focus on the little things, you know? I uh, I always tell people uh, I I have a lot of sympathy um, for pediatricians. They have to know everything from birth to 18 years. I only have to know the first couple of years and even a very small part of that. I don't need to know about leukemia or broken bones or asthma or any of that stuff. I just need to know what a newborn does, you know, six month old, 18 month old, 24 month old. I don't need to worry about all that other stuff. So the pediatrician is not an expert in newborns because they've got a big field to know. Me, I can be an expert in newborns. I don't need to know about all that other stuff. So I don't fault them for not knowing it. I, if I were going to fault uh, healthcare providers, it would be because they don't, re- they don't refer to the experts when they need it. You know, they would, A pediatrician wouldn't try to set a broken arm, and most of them won't treat leukemia. Uh, they refer to the experts who do that. And when they refer to the lactation consultants, we'll be able to help better this mom didn't need to wait 19 days. She could have seen me the very next day and I'd have, I would have would have had the same response.
1: Well, the world is a better place for your voice being out there, teaching all your students, helping all the families. I cannot tell you how much I have enjoyed our conversation. I've learned so much. I just really am inspired by your passion and all that you're bringing to the table. And I think before we go, we ask all our guests to leave this community of listeners with one little uplift or one sentiment to help cheer them on and encourage them. And I feel as though perhaps you could, you could leave a little note for all the fathers and the partners out there before you go.
2: Sure. Well, you know, if I could just say one thing to all fathers, it would be a message of love. It would be a message of um, make sure that you love your family, you love your children, you love your newborns, you love your wife, you love the people that you care for. Um, there, Every time an adult interacts with a child, um, that child can either come away with a positive, uplifting experience or a negative experience. And when you come at your problems from a perspective of love not anger not rules not any of the other things just love okay when you come at it from from a perspective of love you will you are much more likely to have that baby that child ping off of you in a positive direction i am where i am because as i moved through my life i bumped into the right people who gave me a positive response afterward and so it it kept bumping me further and further in that positive direction. Um, I just bumped into the right people at the right time, and I was very fortunate for that. And so as a father, I try to do that with my children, that I always want to leave them um, uh, uh, moving in the right direction with the idea that I love them, Um, that it happened just today. My 16-year-old was was frustrated, and he was storming around the house as a 16-year-old does sometimes. And I had to pull him aside and explain to him, You know. It doesn't help, okay? It's a storm around the house, you know, being angry. It all it does is make everything worse. And I want you to be a better person. I want you to grow up and be a better man. And so you need to realize that your behavior has negative repercussions on the people around you. So I, I love you and I want you to be better. And so uh, I, I, this, I this this is what I where I want you to go. And this is what I recommend you doing. You know, um, I didn't do it because I don't like noise in my house and I didn't do it because there's rules and I didn't even do it because it's the right or wrong thing to do. I did it because I love him and I want him to be a better person. And so my advice to dads is always the same. It, everything starts with love. If what you're doing comes from a perspective of love, not a perspective of I want, uh, but a perspective of love, then you're, you will always make the right decisions or at least you'll make the right decisions more often than not.
1: Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for spending this time with us. It's been a real pleasure.
0: This has been the Pump Spotting Podcast. We'll be continuing the conversation and hanging out over on our app. We hope you'll come by to share your story and thoughts. And if you haven't already downloaded Pump Spotting, it's quick and easy to set up your profile and join the community. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks to our wonderful production team at Pitchwire, who partner with us to bring you these stories. We'll see you next time, and remember, you are capable, you are radiant, and you are not alone.